right. Would you please stand, if you are able, for a reading from God's holy word? Today's scripture reading is from Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Please read with me the verses in bold. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Good morning, near and far. Um, I think there are kids. Uh, if you are a kid or if you have kids, uh, between uh, kindergarten, uh, even younger than that, uh, through fifth grade, there are activity sheets that you can participate in that corresponds to the sermon this morning. And after all the kids have gone through, uh, adults, if you want to take one, you can definitely do crossword puzzles and and worksheets as well, but I'll give a, a, a little bit of time for kids to come up and grab those activity sheets on, on clipboards. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Thankful that you're with us this morning. What a beautiful day. Uh, thankful to be worshiping this spring day under the tent uh, with our growing congregation. For uh, many of you who have been following the daily Lenten prayer on YouTube or following in the prayer calendar uh, might have been led to believe that we were going to hear a sermon on solitude this morning. In full confession, we are not. Uh, when we created the calendar over a month ago, yes, uh, the discipline of study uh, was on, uh, on solitude. But I think after the, a day after the publication went into print, I changed my mind. So I apologize for any confusion. Or to anyone who came today because I was going to preach on this particular discipline of solitude. And if that's you, I will not be offended if you leave. <laughs> for this sermon series in Lent on the spiritual disciplines that we have called Intentional Pursuit... We have used the outline of Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline, to outline our own sermon series here. Uh, Richard Foster, in his book, organizes neatly into these three categories, 
He calls them the inward disciplines, the outward disciplines, and the corporate disciplines. The design of the book is to correlate the disciplines with the growth, with the growth of a follower of Jesus. The spiritual disciplines find their beginning with the Christian. Again, these are practices that are practiced inwardly and then grow and, be, and, are, and are practiced outwardly and then finally are established and celebrated corporately. If you want to simplify uh, the disciplines even more, perhaps a two-category distinction, you might, you might divide the two as the disciplines of abstinence and the disciplines of engagement. <laughs> Again, if that might help. The disciplines of abstinence might be disciplines that help us remove uh, destructive or unhealthy habits, or sometimes to relinquish something in order to gain uh, something new, to give up something good in order for the greater good. And then there are the disciplines of engagement or activity that help strengthen, uh, bring uh, fortitude or focus in our life. Perhaps is a good way of looking at this is, uh, as I have often looked at it, uh, a healthy diet and regular exercise. I know, uh, again, when we look at the spiritual disciplines, it might be good to think of it this way. I know early on when I tried to, ex when I tried to uh, lose weight, and not like I need to, but uh, back, in, you know, back in the day when I have uh, thought about uh, losing weight, you know, again, these two things, I, I, I wanted to do one, but not the other. And I told my wife, I might practice the, the healthy diet, but not exercise. Uh, it has not worked. But again, if you look at the disciplines this way, uh, perhaps the, the disciplines of abstinence, those things that we give up, and the disciplines of activity or engagement, those things that we do to help bring freedom, to bring fortitude or strength, and to bring focus, these might be maybe the equivalent of a healthy diet and regular exercise. Now, if you're following one of the, either one of these two organizations of the disciplines, the discipline of submission might fall into the class of the outward disciplines. We might even be able to classify this in the corporate disciplines, or maybe even the, again, or maybe the other category are the, or, or the disciplines of engagement. But before we get into all this, we must ask ourselves the question, how in the world is submission a spiritual discipline? We can understand prayer. We can understand meditation on the Word of God. We understand confession. We understand worship. These all fall neatly into these categories of the disciplines. They all seem like spiritual exercises but submission? Now, if we're making this a spiritual discipline, I say we vote to make bowling a spiritual discipline too. <laughs> Let's see how Brad does this with this, with this one. <laughs> but all kidding aside, as we have mentioned over the past few weeks, the disciplines are not the goal. The disciplines are not the ultimate end. The goal 
and I have to be careful when I say this, and I think you have to understand it the right way, but the goal is to not really, uh, is, is the goal is not to get really good at it. The goal of the spiritual disciplines is not really about getting really good at that particular practice. Although it's not a bad idea to get good at it, to be one who prays well, to be one who is well-versed in the scriptures, those who get in the regular habits of fasting or good at confession or worship. However, in most cases, if not all, the disciplines hold no value whatsoever. They are merely the instrument that draws us closer to the heart of God and aids us in our sanctification. A fancy theological word that simply means uh, in our spiritual growth to become more and more like Jesus, to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. All the spiritual disciplines are there to help us to understand God's heart. And the discipline of submission seems to fit the bill nicely, not because it's easy to do or puts us in a nice, calm, relaxing state as we sometimes think the disciplines of meditation and prayer do. But the discipline of submission, I think, the best way I can describe it is like a wrestling match. It's like boxing with God and with others with whom we have a difficult time submitting. And how fitting the picture, and how fitting, and how fitting that the picture matches well with the second category, the disciplines of engagement, a rigorous activity or a rigorous exercise, not easy to do, but sorely needed if we're going to grow. Spiritual discipline gurus like Richard Foster and Dallas Willard, both who have written extensively on the spiritual disciplines, include submission in their respective list of disciplines or practices they believe were modeled in the life of Jesus. And if we really think about it, the greatest command is to love God with all our heart and all our mind and all our soul and all our strength. And the second one is like it, to love our neighbor as ourself. The discipline of submission may be one of the disciplines we need most because it focuses primarily on the spirit in which we view God and the same spirit in which we view others. Now, submission is not a friendly word. It may not even be a politically correct word especially in the cultural moment that we find ourselves. It has become a bad word in our culture. Submission is a, has, a, has connotations of being misogynistic, of being sexist or oppressive. These days, submission is a bad word because it's equated with value and worth that one person is less valuable or of less worth than another. It's a rousing word that stirs up all sorts of negative thoughts when taken in the context of relationships. In an, age, in an age of liberation and freedom and equal rights, this word comes off as countercultural. 
But the biblical idea of submission has been and continues to be badly perverted and abused by sinful human beings. I'm sorry, submission, not the biblical idea, but submission has been badly perverted. And we know that God's word in the hands of a religious fool can sometimes do immense harm. And so we need to be careful how we tread around the text this morning, but not so careful that we miss the point of Paul's writing. Submission is a problematic word, and it's problematic in our culture because it goes against the very grain of what we hold to be of great value. And in, and in my honest opinion, perhaps of greatest value in our country, our freedom, our independence. Now, freedom is a good thing. Independence is a good thing. There are many who fight every day for our freedom, giving us the protection and the liberties we get to enjoy. There are those who have gone before us who have fought for our freedom from oppressive rule or from inequalities or injustices. But you and I both know that an unchecked freedom, now that sounds... Uh, oxymoronic, doesn't it? An unchecked freedom leads us to these dangerous places of independence and self-sufficiency and self-reliance and self-determination that puts us above all and under none. Listen to what one author says, and if you want to... Um, the author, I can definitely give you the author. Independence is what he said. Independence is what the serpent told, uh, sold Adam and Eve. And independence is the reward that the enemy continues to wave in front of each one of us every day. At some time and in some way, we will all buy into the delusion of independence. The lie of independence is designed to make me believe that I am more wiser and more righteous than I really am. It makes me think I'm a mature person living in the colony of the immature. It causes me to reason that if I do bad things, I do them not because of what's inside of me, but because of the pressures I'm forced to deal with that are outside me. In a day and age when independence is praised and so highly valued, I wonder if it's really a good thing when it comes to our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. The Apostle Paul begins the next section of this letter to the church at Philippi with a reminder of what God has done for us. This morning we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, which is the second chapter. He's already spent a, a good portion of the first chapter giving us his greetings, giving us, uh, again, giving the readers a thanksgiving and prayer for the advancement of the gospel in Philippi. And then in chapter 2, he begins the section by saying, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any comfort from love, if any participation in the Spirit, if any affection and sympathy... You'll notice that verse 1 contains four if statements. 
And now these four if statements are not expressions of doubts, but these are in the Greek expressions of certainty. And maybe in the English, maybe it might be better translated as the word uh, since. And again, if you use that word again, since we have an encouragement in Christ, since we have comfort from love, since we have participation in the Spirit, since we have affection and sympathy, that make my joy complete. Paul says, in light of everything you have received and enjoyed, keep the unity afforded to us by God, by being of the same mind and being of the same love. The underlying principle here should be noted as Christian service flows naturally from God's kindness to us. It's not as if God says, do this and I will bless you. But instead, he says, I have blessed you. So now do this. And Paul makes it very clear that the saints at Philippi already possess these things. And so he says, because of these things, submit to one another. God has always said in the scriptures that he loves us, that he has loved us first, and that our ability to love others and that our ability to love him is all a result of him loving us first. Now, I wanted us to begin here because the love of Christ, the grace of Jesus, the mercy of our Lord is always the starting point of our submission to God and our submission to one another. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, Paul writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul reminds us, since we have been so loved by God, Paul reminds us, since we have received encouragement by what Christ has done for us, Paul tells us that since we have all these blessings from God himself, we are to submit to one another. Paul reminds us that since we have been, he reminds us to take a gospel posture. A gospel posture. Now think about the posture of Jesus. When God became a man, he did not come to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. He took on the form of a servant. He did not allow his position and stature as creator of the universe to keep him from humbling himself to become human. In John 13, he embodied servanthood by washing the feet of his disciples. This expression of humility is the posture that every believer, Paul reminds us, to assume. The disciples struggled to understand this reality. They wanted positions of power and authority in the kingdom. They wanted greatness and Jesus modeled instead sacrificial love and a gospel posture. A gospel posture is one that does not think of oneself too highly. A gospel posture is not one that thinks of, of himself or herself too lowly. A gospel posture is to view yourself rightly 
Again, in other words, to view yourself as God sees you. A gospel posture sees yourself as a sinner in need of grace, of a person who has been broken and, and oppressed, but has been redeemed and bought with the price. Someone who understands gospel posture knows that he has been saved by grace and the mercy of the Lord has been, has been bestowed on him. A gospel posture, when viewed rightly, is the way God sees you. And so we are to assume a godly posture, as Paul, says, Paul states in Philippians chapter 2, he says, in our attitude. In verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude as that of Jesus. Have the same gospel posture as that of Jesus. Now, this is significant because it is entirely possible that we can submit outwardly, but inwardly be rebellious. It's entirely possible to follow all the rules and then hate it. I mean, if you have kids, you may understand this. You may have kids who do exactly what you say, but you know, if you know them, they hate doing what you tell them to do. But not much different from us. Not much different for us. When we feel like we're doing all the right things, but begrudgingly. Inside our heart, we're raising our fist at those in authority or those who think they know better than us. It's entirely possible to do the right thing, to submit outwardly but inwardly be rebellious. Humility isn't about pretending to be lower than we are. It's about realizing we are not as mighty as we think. When we understand who we are, gifted, loved, and made in the image of God, but also flawed and weak and wholly dependent on God, then we will naturally show respect, listen to others, and be eager to see those around us flourish. Christians are people who are being sanctified. That means they are called away from arrogance, from brashness, and pride towards humility, meekness, and compassion. The fascinating thing about submission, as is with any discipline, is that the discipline is supposed to, as strangely as it sounds, lead to our freedom, not to our subjugation. The strange thing about submission is that it's supposed to lift up our spirits and free us. The disciplines, when practiced correctly, are supposed to bring freedom, not subjugation. They are merely the means. They are not the answer. They only lead us to the answer. And submission, what it does is it frees the heart, not enslave it. That's why Paul can also say, be slaves not of sin, but of righteousness. Romans chapter 8 tells us that we have a spirit of, not of slavery, but a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters of God. That we are slaves to righteousness. And there's something about submission. When we order our hearts, 
when we see ourselves as God sees us, there's something about this that is completely freeing and liberating. There's something about consider others better than yourselves. There's something about having a gospel posture that says, I'm a sinner, that says, you're a sinner, but I love you with the love of Christ. There's something so liberating about a gospel posture, about an attitude of submission, about considering others more significant than ourselves that's freeing, not enslaving. God has always opposed those who do things outwardly while the heart is far from him. Jesus spoke against the Pharisees of that time. He says, you hypocrites. Rightly did Isaiah prophesy about you. People honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. How significant and how true that is for some of us who have been there, who know what it means to do the right thing and to say the right thing. And to act a certain way, but inside, it's so difficult to submit. A heart that is far from God cannot really please Him and cannot truly obey Him in the outward actions that He requires. And the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, did not understand this. Therefore, we must work our way through these disciplines with great care and discernment in order to ensure that, again, these things become ministers of our freedom, not our enslavement, of life, not death, not until it kills you. These are supposed to be liberating and, and freedom-producing, that when I see you the way God sees you, it does something for my own heart. One person said that evangelism, a sharing of our, of our faith, is really like one beggar showing another beggar where to find food. And perhaps if we saw submission that same way, if we saw each other as image bearers of Christ, as image bearers of God, wouldn't I do everything I could in my power to listen and to hear and to love you the best way you need to be loved? Submission is a bad word, yes, in our culture, made such a negative concept and connotation of this word, but it's beautiful. The way the Bible describes submission, the way the Bible defines what it means to subject ourselves to one another is beautiful. Because when we read through the rest of chapter 2, you see this in full force. Because you may recall that in the upper room, before the arrest of Jesus and the crucifixion of Jesus on the cross, Jesus was willing to wash the, the feet of his disciples. Was this an empty ritual? I don't think so. I think it was deeply meaningful, and it's meaningful 
Um, again, this account is meaningful beyond words. It expressed Christ's humility in a servant attitude. And the washing, again, symbolizes his spiritual cleansing of the disciples. And so Philippians 2 tells us that, again, that Jesus did all these things. He said, have the same mind among yourselves, he says, which was yours in Christ Jesus, who though, uh, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Jesus does here for us is that not only in his attitude and not only in his mind, but in his actions. Not only in his attitude, but in his actions, he did for us what he talked about. He did it. He lived it. He washed the feet of his disciples. And the Philippians 2 will tell us that he actually carried it all the way to the cross as he was thinking about us, as he carried the sins of the whole world upon his shoulders. He emptied himself. He emptied himself, certainly not of divine attributes, but he emptied himself. He continued to be God, but he emptied himself of an exalted position for the time being. And instead of assuming the position of a supreme ruler, he took the position of the most humble servant by becoming man, and he did that as one of his own creation. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. This is Paul's version of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The phrase being in the form of God is nothing less than a direct assertion of the deity of Christ. And again, Jesus possessed all these things. Whatever makes him God, God. Jesus uh, had the same essence as God. He was truly equal with God. But again, the next statement is what makes this remarkable. He did not regard his position as God as something to be grasped. He didn't try to hold on to his glory, but willingly laid it aside, and he did not his, assert his rights, though he had every right to claim his rights. He emptied himself, becoming nothing, taking the look and the nature of a servant. He appeared in human likeness, and he obeyed even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Our society, please forgive me for what I say, because it may come off wrong, but our society is absolutely obsessed with equality. And it is true that there ought to be equality. But the emptying of Christ, this Greek word that means kenosis, or this Greek word kenosis that means emptying of himself, instructs us that what we might demand by virtue of our equality may be that which we are to relinquish in order to be obedient servants of Christ and of one another. Jesus' disciples continually sought for positions of power and prestige. However, Jesus taught them that the way to greatness was through service and self-sacrifice. 
Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you, because whoever wishes to become great among you shall become your servants. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then, too, we have certain positions and certain possessions and certain privileges. But Paul teaches us here that these liberties may need to be laid aside, not because they are wrong, but because they fail to achieve what is in the best interest of a brother or a sister in Christ. The posture that, that Jesus alludes us to, the, the posture that Paul tells us about in Philippians chapter 2, is a gospel posture that lays aside men as well as women. Fathers and mothers as well as children. Masters as well as slaves. For every person who is a follower of Jesus, The Bible tells us to follow the example of Jesus who did not consider equality with God. 